Coming in. Coming in three, two, one. Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. We normally say at this point, the Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. That's not quite true in this case, though, because we're looking at a story that has received plenty of courage that has received plenty of coverage. We just happen to think it warrants more, as it tells the story of global capital trying, and in many cases, I'll start this whole thing again, coming in three, (laughs) two, one. Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. Normally, at this point, we say the Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report, and what telly doesn't tell you. That's not quite true in this case, as we're looking at a story that has received plenty of coverage. We just happen to think it warrants more, as it tells the story of global capital trying, and in many cases succeeding, in bringing elected governments to heel. We're talking about Uber and the leak of 124,000 files to The Guardian by Mark McGann, who was a senior executive at the company between 2014 and 2016. McGann says he decided to speak out because he believes Uber knowingly flouted laws in dozens of countries and misled people about the benefits to drivers of the company's gig economy model. Uber has acknowledged past failings, but says the company has transformed since 2017 when Dara Khosrowshahi replaced the company's founder, Travis Kalanick, as CEO. They said we have not and will not make excuses for past behaviour that is clearly not in line with our present values. In an investigation overseen by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, McGann alleges that it was part of Uber's modus operandi to sometimes break the law and then seek to negotiate a settlement with governments. French President Emmanuel Macron, then the economy minister, was a key ally of the company, brokering backstage deals in a country where Uber's arrival had caused riots amongst taxi drivers. They also had support from Neely Cruz, the former EU digital chief. The files reveal that Uber executives met the UK's then-Chancellor, George Osborne, in Davos, Switzerland. He was described as a strong advocate for the company, and there were unofficial meetings with six Conservative cabinet ministers. Let's speak now to Dala Gabriel. Dala is a researcher at the LSE, and her work specialises in Uber and the gig economy. Hi, Dala, you're right. I am good, thanks. That's quite a charge sheet, isn't it? Forgive me, but it, it's <laughs> worth spelling out, I think, in some detail, the scale and the extent of the leaks that McGann has come out with. And what's really interesting about it is that Uber isn't significantly challenging them. Yeah, I think that you're completely right. The strategy that they've decided to go forward with is essentially to act like there has been some kind of significant break in the way that the Uber under Travis Kalanick operated and the Uber under the new CEO, um, Dara Khosrowshahi, um, is, is managing. Uh, and because clearly what is being said in these in these leaks uh, is pretty difficult to refute, not only because it's come from someone who previously was actually in Uber, but also because many of the effects that are being talked about, for example, the misleading of workers of how good 
the kind of package is to work with Uber, uh, the uh, railroading of regulations, the excessive amount of money that's put into lobbying senior politicians. These effects are things that we can see before our very eyes, particularly workers, particularly the drivers who, who work for Uber. Uh, but obviously that is a cop out really to act like we are in this new phase of Uber where this past behavior would never be seen. Uh, the use of the kill switch, which was basically the way that Uber officials referred to uh, essentially preventing governments from accessing documentation during investigations. We have evidence that that is still going on, um, particularly with Uber's uh, subsidiary, Uber Eats. And again, and the attitude of, of trying to undercut uh, local regulations, including labor regulations, uh, that is still something that is very much part uh, of Uber's model. The kill switch is effectively a means by which Uber says to its employees, to its executives, let's make sure that law enforcement or those who regulate, for example, around working conditions and hours can't get access to their files. Now, as far as I'm aware, and there's nothing in McGann's leaks that I'm aware of that suggests this, that they haven't, the kill switch was never used in the UK, but it has been used. Hmm. Yeah, so we have evidence that it's been used, but not so far from what I've read uh, in the UK. But it's really important to situate this within a broader context, which is that companies like Uber, the platform economy, rely on information asymmetry. They rely on lack of transparency. Uh, for example, when it comes to a workers' rights perspective, uh, one of the biggest grievances that workers have is essentially that data, uh, which is gathered through surveillance essentially of them while they're at work, is then used to inform uh, management decisions that are deployed by an algorithm, which can cut them off from their form of income with a press of a button. And often in a way that they have no access to understanding what data informed that process and how that decision uh, was made. And so this black box, uh, attitude, this idea that 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 these companies should not be subject to the the, the typical kinds of interrogation or investigation that other companies otherwise would be operating under, particularly if you're an employer, which uh, the Supreme Court ruled uh, that Uber essentially was um, recently. Uh, that is the, the modus operandi of these companies. That's what they rely on is information asymmetry and, and lack of transparency. And not only that, but the move fast and break things attitude, which is very much a Silicon Valley uh, platform economy attitude, which is essentially dominate the market, railroad local regulations, railroad union movements, and deal with the consequences later once you've got a city dependent on your services, essentially. Yeah, and McGann was very much part of that process, wasn't he? The guy who leaked mm. these documents. Part of his job was as a lobbyist across Europe, the Middle East and Asia. So the company would go in. They would, in some cases, break rules, challenge existing regulations, and do so knowingly. And the idea was then that having created the uproar and having created the demand for their product, they would mm. then seek to negotiate with governments who in many cases were minded to support 
their activities because they saw it as a, a potential growth area for jobs and the economy. Yeah, and, and in cases, I'm going to use the UK as an example here, uh, in cases where regulators did try, have tried to curb Uber's power, for example, Sadiq Khan uh, has tried to uh, you know, we, we know that uh, Uber has had its license revoked before by TfL, etc. This looks like a regulator taking this company to task. But oftentimes those have been done, those strategies have been done in quite haphazard ways and in ways that actually disadvantage the workers, that hit the workers the hardest. So, for example, suddenly revoking Uber's license threatens to take away the incomes that multiple, like many workers have come to be reliant upon. The imposition, for example, of a congestion charge of the ultra low emission zones charge uh, on drivers rather than the company. These are examples of regulators who try to take Uber to task, essentially picking the wrong target. What we've needed instead is a uh, labor oriented and labor centric way uh, of curbing the power of these companies and saying that if you want to operate in this in this jurisdiction you have to be a, you have to abide by the labor regulations that our union movement has fought very hard uh, to secure you can't use legal loopholes and legal mis- misclassifications in order to essentially evade these regulations by self-defining as a technology company rather than an employer which you clearly are Boris Johnson in the early days was an opponent of Uber, wasn't he? But there's evidence that Uber lent on George Osborne, who was then the Chancellor, Linton Crosby, who was a senior advisor to David Cameron, to put pressure on Johnson to encourage him to be more lenient towards the company. Yeah, and I think that this is one of the really important things to remember about Uber is that Silicon Valley platforms uh, and companies like Uber like to portray their astronomic rise as essentially a free market success story, that there was a gap in the market and some tech geniuses filled it. They provided a service uh, and a form of economic economic opportunity that was simply very popular. And that's why these companies have been so quote unquote successful, although obviously the definition of success is a bit hazy considering that Uber has never actually turned uh, a profit. But actually what these leaks really confirm for us is that this was not just an organic rise to the top by an effective model or a model that really served the community. Rather, this was, you know, regulators and politicians made active space for a company that misled workers as to what their their working career and their working life could look like under this company that offered uh, um, passengers, that offered customers, yes, cheap transportation, but cheap transportation that was uh, cheap because workers were being so heavily underpaid and exploited and not being classified as workers to begin with. Uh, And regulators essentially allowed that to happen. And when we look at how many, you know, not only undeclared meetings, but declared meetings between Uber lobbyists and senior politicians like uh, George Osborne, it really begs the question of how do these companies that have essentially transformed our cities, 
have the ability to do so without any consultation from the people that are actually going to be affected? And why are our senior politicians having undisclosed meetings with venture capitalists to make these, again, very dramatic decisions that have not only transformed transportation in this country, but have actually transformed employment regulate, employment norms um, in this country without you know, all happening behind closed doors. You know, you and I don't get to have private meetings with George Osborne where he's actually going to listen to what we're going to say. And this is the central, um, this is the central story of platforms like Uber through overwhelming venture capital, through overwhelming political capital. They have been able to very rapidly um, affect all of our lives and transform our cities, I would argue, uh, for the worse. Yeah, it's a, a really intriguing and convoluted way in which these companies can sometimes avoid paying tax in a particular geographical location. So, for example, in 2017, Uber had revenues of £59.5 million, but they had costs of £54.9 million Mm. because they said that they had to pay licensing costs to a Dutch-based processing company who processed their payments. So you paid your fare in the UK, but the cash went abroad to Holland. And you Uber then argued that because you were going through that conduit, the money should be taxed abroad, not in the UK, which deprived the UK exchequer in that tax year anyway of money that many people argue should have been paid to the UK. Now, Uber, Uber now says that they are committed to complying with tax laws and regulations where they operate, including in the UK and the Netherlands. But this business model whereby companies can cleverly move quite legally large sums of money from one tax jurisdiction to another are kind of typical, I think, of the way in which these Silicon Valley companies, these disruptors, as they like to call themselves, have operated. Yeah, and essentially what these platforms represent is neoliberalism at its most intense, as the most intense form of it that that we have seen. Um, And it's one of the central logics of neoliberalism is that you privatize the gains and you socialize the losses. Uh, One of the losses that we've had um, is the the fact that we have thousands and thousands of largely racialized workers who are in debt, who are in precarious work, who are now being having to depend on this incredibly unstable and unhealthy form of income. And I say unhealthy because, you know, driving around for 12 hours a day has significant impacts on your physical and mental health, but that is what drivers have to do in order to make ends meet, in order to, you know, cover their costs, because it's actually very costly to be an Uber driver because you have to have a particular car model that you then finance, et cetera. So these are examples of the losses. Where, but then you then have the gains being privatized and located elsewhere and not fed back into our local um, economies. And that is essentially the central story of neoliberalism. And these platforms, which I would argue are some one of the most intense forms of neoliberal, of the neoliberal form, um, is, is, is a typical example of.
Yeah. What I would say, though, is that I've spoken to Uber drivers, and this may reflect a wider problem in the UK economy and the gig economy, which predates Uber. I've spoken to many Uber drivers who are broadly happy with their lot because they say that the amount that they get from a fare is greater than it would be from a traditional private hire company. They feel that the amount they get from Uber, the the kind of the startup rate is lower than you get from a traditional private hire company. So for many drivers, Uber is, even though you might find it difficult, Uber, Uber seems an improvement on what they have often had through traditional private hire. Well, a lot of the drivers that are now working for Uber, you know, a significant proportion of them uh, did work as private hire drivers. A lot more of them were in other parts of the economy uh, that collapsed after 2008 uh, and where it's become more difficult to get to get work. And that is why, in particular, we have a very racialized uh, demographic. You know, this is a largely workers of color Uh, workforce. And that is because workers of colour are sort of the first to be spat out of the formal labour market during times of crisis. Um, But what we see is essentially a lot of, so a lot of workers go with this model because it has a low barrier of entry. So in in an economy where good work, good jobs are very difficult to find, it is a relatively easily accessible uh, form of work. But what a lot of drivers will say is that particularly the ones that have been working with Uber for many years now, you know, since the beginning, since Uber first started operating in London, a lot of them will say that when they first came into the job, the fares were reasonable, the uh, working time was reasonable, and it seemed like a really good opportunity when, again, it's difficult to find work elsewhere. And it was they were more able to fit the work around their uh family commitments around their social life, et cetera. But what they found is essentially this hook and sink strategy where Uber hooks in, these companies hook in a bunch of workers, get a bunch of workers dependent on their model, and then gradually decrease um, the, the, the working conditions and the wages. So what we've seen, you know, a lot of people have noticed that it's much more difficult to get an Uber now than it ever was before. And that's not because there aren't people on the streets looking for work or in the roads looking for work. It's because the fares and the wages that are being offered are simply d- not economical. It's not economical to take on the majority of jobs um, through Uber now because we have seen wage depression. Um, in this sector. And so it's, it's, it's a very, and not, not only that, but one thing that you also have with these, with these platforms is not only is other wages lower now than they were at the beginning. um, And at the moment, you know, I asked one worker, you know, how do you find the flexibility of the job? And he said to me, well, I have to work 12 hours a day, so I don't really have time to do much else. So the fact that I'm flexible isn't something that I really experience on the ground. Um, But also it's the precarity, you know, it's the fact that you can have drivers who have been on this platform for years and years and years who have, you know, they're financing, they're paying uh, finance on a car, they are, you know, they have established essentially their life around working on this platform. And then, you know, because of a customer complaint or because if they've been algorithmically flagged or for whatever reason, without any explanation, they can wake up one day and find that 
there's no work um, that, that they can't, that they've been fired essentially without any disciplinary process, without any kind of, of explanation of why. And that precarity, that kind of anxiety uh, is quite unique to the Uber model. And is something that in my conversations with drivers is something that is incredibly difficult to deal with. When Uber first arrived in the UK, and I accept that this has changed a little now, they were revolutionary in that if you hadn't booked through a private hire company in advance, the only way you could get a cab in London, in Birmingham, in Manchester and other major cities was to hail down a black cab. And that would very often cost you twice as much as Uber. So it was very attractive for travellers, people looking to save cash, getting from A to B. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I often say, you know, people often say that that black cabs have really suffered as a result of, of Uber. And I think that that's true to an extent, but Uber was much more disruptive in the private hire sector. So they were much more disruptive for local minicab offices that were typically owned by local members of the community. Uh, and that, you know, were had a very different, you know, that's where the work has really been taken from. You know, now if you are, you know, I've spoken to many drivers that have been deactivated from Uber and they've described trying to go back to a local minicab office because they can't access the Uber platform anymore and finding it essentially impossible to make there, it up. There, there, isn't that, there isn't that local yeah. minicab office anymore. Uber's successfully destroyed yeah. the opposition. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But- and and that, that, that offer of cheap transportation is incredibly important you know this is something that our cities need we need not only cheap transportation but transportation that actually uh means that that we are all connected you know that we don't have vast swathes of our cities that cities that are underserved by public transport the answer to that is not to allow private corporations to flout our labor regulations to uh to to destroy you know the the lives of so many of the working class people that work on these platforms the answer to that is to provide good, affordable, and expansive public transport. Uh, That's the answer. That's how you fulfill that need in a sustainable and humane way. Do you accept that Uber brought with it technology that was innovative and would probably not have emerged without Uber? One of the things that many people who converted to Uber in the early days enjoyed was the certainty of price. I think all of us have had the private hire journey in which the driver says at the destination, how much do you normally pay? (laughs) Which is not really a rational way to assess a price. So with Uber and now with similar successes like Bolt, you know what the fare is. There's no haggling. That actually makes it better for the drivers as well because there's no cash involved. And you could also see arrival time via an app. You could share your location via the app. Would you accept that Uber has brought with it some beneficial technological innovation? I think that there's lots of things there. You know, I think that the cashlessness is a really important part, uh, a really important benefit. Uh, A lot of drivers talk to me about feeling much more safe, Uh, because they don't have cash in their car, which is particularly, it makes people, it makes drivers very vulnerable, and particularly drivers who do the nighttime uh, shift. 
But I wouldn't want to overstress how innovative this is. You know, this is technology that has been available for quite some time. It just wasn't deployed because the resources behind deploying resources weren't put behind deploying it. What Uber did is it brought the resources to that that technology um, so that those so that it could be integrated into um, this, you know, the taxi driving um, model. A lot of these technological innovations um, don't, you know, you don't need um, something like Uber in order to develop those kinds of technological innovations. But now that we look at where we are, I think it's worth, you know, if we're talking about what a sustainable platform model could look like, it's worth thinking about, you know, what are the things that worked? Uh, I think that the cashless um, approach, that's one thing that I think is quite beneficial. Um, taking those examples and making it into something that is, you know, publicly owned, that is fairer, that is sustainable, uh, and not kind of, I think, actually, Uber was much more innovative in its uh, legal strategizing, you know, in its, you know, we're going to self-define as a technology company, rather than an employer, that was actually, to me, a lot more, more, a lot more of an innovative, Uber-specific development, rather than the technology, which has been, you know, the, the ability to do cashless transfers is a technology that has developed you know prior to to uber's existence you know that is something that is embedded in so many different parts um, of our logistical uh infrastructure now would you like to see uber removed from our streets i would like to see uber dramatically changed i would like to see the raison d'etre of why uber exists to be changed i don't want it to be uh, I don't want its primary uh, purpose to be to extract data, to create data assets, and to increase the data valuation of a company that is owned by a small number of venture capitalists or that is invested in by a small number of venture capitalists. I want to see something like Uber be designed to offer sustainable and, and good work for people, uh, for workers, and reliable, affordable transportation for others, um, for people who want to use that service. That is something that is incompatible with the financialized venture capital driven model that is popularized um, in Silicon Valley. Uh, I think these, these models, these technologies can definitely be uh, reappropriated and redeployed, um, but with a fundamentally different purpose, which is to provide sustainable and useful services to the community uh, rather than to make a, a small number of, of venture capitalists uh, theoretically richer because as I said they still haven't turned a profit but their data valuation which actually is also going down but that's sort of been the bread and butter uh, of how this company has even survived this long. Dahlia, fascinating to speak to you. Thank you. That's Dahlia Gabriel from the LSC. Before we go, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharo. We can report without fear or favour because there is no wealthy proprietor telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary readers and listeners taking out subscriptions to the Byline Times. So please subscribe if you can. You get details about subscriptions at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already taken out a subscription, thank you. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>